Well, stand with me and turn in your Bibles. I hope you have one to the prophet Daniel and make your way to chapter 2 as we come to the second study and uh, this wonderful book that should occupy our attention until about Easter of this spring. And we're going to look at all 49 verses of Daniel chapter 2 along the way this morning. I want to get us started, however, by simply reading verses 1 through 16 to give you a sense of the trouble that King Nebuchadnezzar experienced so many centuries ago. And then I will pray and we'll continue on this morning. So listen once again as God speaks to you now through his perfect word. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream. My spirit is troubled to know the dream. And the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn from limb to limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and reward and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. And they answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show you its interpretation. And the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me the interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious, and commanded that all the wise men in Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. And Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? And Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint at him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Lord, we ask that you would show us wonderful things from your word this morning. For all wisdom and insight and knowledge belongs to you. And fill us then with your spirit that we might hear this truth with honesty in our hearts, with humility in our minds. That you would point us to our King of Kings, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I've had a reason in recent weeks to think more often than usual about this old preacher named John Owen. 
for Christmas, a friend had uh, purchased for me this first volume of a new edition of Owen's Collected Works that's being published. And in just under two weeks' time, I'm teaching a winter intensive at the seminary that requires all of students to read one of John Owen's masterful uh, works. And even just last night, I was reading a relatively recent biography that was published on John Owen that, that sought to characterize his life as nothing more than, quote, an experience of defeat. And you don't even have to know much of John Owen's story uh, to know that it actually is quite true that his life, its several decades, were seemingly just seen John Owen move from one experience of defeat to the next. Because for a very brief moment of time in the 1640s, he had risen to political and religious power in the land as he belonged to this elite class of theologians in England that was trying to reshape the nation after uh, God's laws, but almost as quickly as they rose to power, uh, they fell out of power, and Owen quickly was marginalized in a world that uh, was quite becoming a foreign land to him in many ways, and it wasn't just political and even religious defeat that he experienced. He experienced a no small number of years of defeat at home as his beloved wife Mary bore 10 children and all of them John had to bury in a very tender young age and then he eventually had to bury his beloved wife Mary herself and even came to the end of his life and he he was wondering if all of the decades that he had spent working for reform in England were collapsing before his very eyes as it seemed as though the church and the land at the time was quickly running back to uh, the ways of Rome. But nevertheless, in spite of all the defeats and all the sorrows and all the troubles, if you were in Owen's room as he was sitting there on his deathbed, uh, what you would have had the occasion to find him pinning was a masterpiece of meditations on the glory of Christ. Because even in all of the defeat, the sorrows and the troubles, uh, John Owen was able to stand firm in faith, hope, and love until the very end. And I love stories like that, and I hope you do too. I love theology that helps Christians stand firm in their soul when the storms of life strike seemingly at all corners of existence. And I hope you like that kind of theology too. I like truth that empowers Christians to faithfulness, even when the world seems to be falling apart. And I hope you like that kind of truth too. And if you're such a person, I've got a text for you this morning in Daniel chapter 2. Because we left off last week at the end of chapter 1 with this timestamp-like truth in verse 21. It simply was a verse that told us Daniel remained in Babylon until King Cyrus came to power. And it was this rapid peak into the future, some 60 years into the future, Uh, that we said told us, while kingdoms rise and fall and kings come and go, God continues to rule and his people continue to remain. And it's that theme of God's sustaining sovereignty that belongs to so many parts of Daniel's story. No doubt it belongs to our text this morning because even though it's a chapter full of 49 verses, kids, it's a very long chapter. Uh, The main thing and the plain thing is this. There is one kingdom that will ultimately rule over all other kingdoms. And so I'd invite you from the very outset this morning to consider what kind of kingdom do you belong to? Before, what king do you ultimately bow? Because the text is going to tell us by the end that there's always a kingdom to which people hold their allegiance. And therefore, of course, there's always a king 
before whom they will ultimately submit. And so the simple theme before us today is this, the Lord's everlasting kingdom. We could say that in a variety of different ways, but that's the plain truth that Daniel 2 means to communicate. There is one kingdom that will rule all other kingdoms. There's one kingdom that's everlasting. Uh, There's one king that's eternal. And so it's a truth that comes to us along the way in this long chapter through three simple characters you might think about it. You have Nebuchadnezzar the dreamer, then eventually you have Daniel the interpreter. And as the interpreter speaks to the dreamer, it actually unfolds the true main character of the story, who of course is God himself, God who is the ruler. So let's notice first of all, the dreamer. Verse 1, chapter 2 tells us this, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. I think it was last week that our uh, daughter Sarah came into the room at some dark hour of the night, and you heard the pitter-patter of her feet across the floor, and then she said something simply like, I had a scary dream. And kids, I wonder if any of you had such a scary dream this week. You know, the text seemingly tells us is Nebuchadnezzar's life was full of nightmares uh, way back then that greatly troubled him. And even that word troubled, in its, in its original, it means to beat regularly. Uh, it pictures this idea of just the heart thumping out of the chest. So great is the anxiety that belongs to Nebuchadnezzar uh, in this moment. And like many people before him, and like many people since, Nebuchadnezzar, he couldn't remember the dream as soon as he got up. But he's desperate to know the details of the dream that so greatly troubles him. And uh, perhaps you would want to ask the question, I mean, certainly I would want to ask the question of why he is so necessarily desperate to discern the details of his dream. And it's probably because in that ancient world of the ancient Eastern kings, when they had a dream that troubled them, they understood the dream's contents to be communicating something about the future. Maybe said differently, they understood a troubling dream to be the pagan god's revelation of what was getting ready to happen. So he's troubled, he's anxious, he's quite insecure, he's desperate to know what's coming in the future. And so you'll see then in verse 2, he calls together his dream team. The magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. And he tells them, not just that you need to interpret, my dear, he actually tells me you need to begin by telling me the contents of the dream. And you'll see in verse 5 how earnest he is. He says that the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. And it's interesting to note here even just what it looks like for a heart, or hearts we could say even, uh, to be apart from the Lord. Because here you have a king uh, that knows nothing about God's truth. You have a king that we talked about even last week has supposed that he has defeated the God of Jerusalem in in sacking that sacred city and bringing forth its temple objects into his pagan houses of worship. And yet here's this king who, apart from the Lord, is nothing more than an insecure insomniac because he can find no calm. He can find no comfort in the world because he doesn't know where the future is going. And I hope you know it's true that for anyone that as outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is ultimately no calm or comfort that's possible for you to find in this world. For perhaps you too don't know where the future is really going. And it's not just the king's insecurity here that the text is highlighting. It's also, of course, the, the magic men and their inability. Because you'll see in verse 10, they, they reply, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. 
for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any person like us before. So it's not just the king's insecurity the text is unfolding. It's also the, the inability of any human heart to do anything by way of wisdom, insight, and knowledge apart from the Lord himself. Isn't it true? Uh, Jesus Christ himself told his disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, the dreamer, of course, is quite irate. He responds in ways that only an insecure, insomniac, tyrannical ruler would. Verse 12, notice, because of this, the king was angry and very furious, and he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. Now, students, uh, when you read a text like that, especially if you were paying attention in chapter 1, you should immediately have alarm bells ring in your mind. Because there's four wise men we know, four interpreters there we know in Babylon who belong to the Lord. Uh, these men we talked about last week, Daniel, Mishael, Azariah, and Hananiah, men whose wisdom was said to be ten times better than all the people in the land. And for reasons we don't know why, Nebuchadnezzar hadn't consulted them, but evidently he had consulted a small portion of the magic men in the empire. And that small portion says, we can't do anything about your dream troubles, Nebuchadnezzar. And so he issues execution orders for all of them, which would include Daniel and his three friends. So strikingly enough, as the text continues, you'll notice that the king's captain, kids, you probably should think about this as the king's executioner. He shows up on Daniel's doorstep. And it's not recorded there in the text, but it seems most likely he shows up on Daniel's doorstep to take his sword and kill Daniel. And Daniel, ever bold and brave, just simply asks a question. Notice verse 15. Why is the king's decree so urgent? Well, Arioch makes the matter known to Daniel. He tells him why the urgency is what it is. And Daniel says, Well, king, I set up an appointment time for when I can meet with you. For I can tell you what your dream is. And I can tell you the interpretation of your vision. So the dreamer now leads to the interpreter in the middle part of the passage as Daniel now comes to the foreground. Uh, there's a good book that John Bunyan wrote uh, on prayer that you could pick up this year. It'd be a, a good, a simple study that you could engage in along the way in the coming months. And he writes in one place, he says, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. And there's a truth in Daniel that he's worth exploring, he's worth emulating, and no part of Daniel's spirituality rises to the surface so consistently in this book as his immediate impulse to pray his devotion as, as a man of prayer, he, he knew you couldn't do anything until you had prayed. But once you had prayed, you could do more. And I wonder how many actions or endeavors you had this past week that you just raced into without even a thought in your mind. Maybe I should pray about this before I pursue something that's on my plate. Well, Daniel knows he must pray, so he calls together his version of the dream team, which is his friends, and notice verse 18. He tells them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. He says, brothers, we need the Lord's mercy because without the Lord's mercy, we're dead men. 
The text quickly tells us the Lord revealed the dream and its interpretation to Daniel. He answered the request promptly. And of course, prompt answers to prayer drive God's people to praise most naturally and immediately. So it's what Daniel does precisely. Notice verse 20 through 23. He says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him to you. O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might. You have made known to me the matter that we have asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. You could say a couple of different things that he praises the Lord for there in that that simple response, but certainly at the center lies the sovereign wisdom of God is is the reason why Daniel is so quick in his praise to God. Because, of course, what did Daniel need most immediately but wisdom? Uh, What did he need but wisdom that only a sovereign God could reveal to him? And so he received the wisdom from God, and the man of prayer now becomes a man of praise. I've had reason throughout the years to um, preach at these graduation services for uh, students that are moving from high school to college or university or into a new season of life. And uh, whenever I've been at such an event, I've tended to always preach the same kind of a sermon. Uh, it's one that's titled, Your Greatest Need. And all I do is take a couple of key proverbs and simply tell the students that your greatest need at this stage in your life is wisdom. A wisdom that's found in Jesus Christ. Wisdom that the God of heaven generously pours upon his people when they ask for it. And I wonder how many of you in here today might be in a similar place, but maybe for different reasons for sure, uh, from Daniel, and that the most desperate need in your life right now is, is wisdom. It's insight. It's knowledge. Something is confronting you for which only the Lord can supply that light of truth. And I trust you know that the Bible does tell us that God is gracious and generous that he is more than willing to pour out his wisdom upon his people when they ask for it. And that's exactly what he did, of course, with Daniel. And so the interpreter now makes his way into the king's court. And it's there as he gives not only the dream, but its interpretation that we find the main character of the passage truly rise to the surface, the main character being none other than the Lord himself. So at long last, kids, after bated breath of suspense, we get to hear what this dream was all about that had troubled Nebuchadnezzar for however long it had. And notice verse 31 through 35. Daniel says, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay, And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on the feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away, so not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So, of course, you can picture, can't you, uh, kids, this, this simple image that Nebuchadnezzar had been so troubled by but hadn't remembered the details about. Uh, you have a, a bright and brilliant statue 
that as the eye looks upon this terrifying statue, it sees it's kind of got four colors, four materials of which it's made. You have the head, it's made of gold. You have, working your way down, you have the arms and the chest, it's silver. You have the stomach and the thighs, it's bronze. And then from the knee below, it's a mixture of clay and iron. And of course, Daniel goes on to say, it's not just that these quarters belong to the image, but that a stone is coming who will crush them all from the ground up. And you'll see that he gives the key to the interpretation, verse 37 and 38. He simply says to Nebuchadnezzar, and you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, power, might, and glory, and into whose hand he has given, well, Wherever they dwell, the children of men, beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. That's the only interpretive prophetic key that he really gives to us. I think the common interpretation of the passage is clear enough. The traditional view is simply that the head, of course, represents the kingdom of Babylon. Head of gold. The next part, the chest and the arms of silver, representing the kingdom of the Medo-Persians. Working your way down, of course, it's the stomach and the thighs, this kingdom of bronze representing the Greeks, and then the Roman Empire belonging to the feet and calves of iron and clay. One kingdom will pass into another, is what Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar. One of the most maligned persecutors of the early Christian church was an emperor in the 4th century named Julian. His terror was so awesome and his leadership so awful that the common citizen referred to him as Julian the Apostate. And in 363, he was mortally wounded in a battle with the Persians. And as many people in the Roman Empire uh, waited for news of whether or not the king was going to survive, a man was said to come upon upon a Christian in the area of Antioch. And simply was asking a question of, what is the carpenter's son doing right now? And of course, children, when he mentioned the carpenter's son, that was his way of speaking about Jesus. And this Christian there in Antioch responded, the maker of the world, whom you call the son of a carpenter. He's employed in making a coffin for the emperor right now. For this king will not last. That's exactly what Daniel is telling Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord who reigns over all things. He, of course, therefore reigns over all kingdoms. Human history has told us, of course, that exactly what Daniel predicted would happen came true. They have a passage of the Babylonians to the Medo-Persians, to the Greeks, and to the Romans. At a time of Romans, something showed up. A stone not made by human hands. A stone that would be a rock of stumbling a stone that would lead to the destruction of empires, a stone that would bring a kingdom that would know no end in this earth and into all eternity. That's precisely what Daniel says. Look at verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will raise up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. There is one kingdom that will rule all others. Uh, There's one kingdom that's everlasting and enduring. There's one kingdom to which you and I must belong if we have any hope in the future. I came across a story this week of Lord Reith, a severe Scotsman in the 1920s. Stood six foot six, quite tall for the time. 
He was the director of the BBC in the 1920s, and in 1927 there was this meeting that he had with directors there at the company to try to outline the programming for the BBC, and there was a young director or a young producer that was suggesting that the other directors noticed there was this rising tide of secularism that were causing many people in the BBC's ordinary audience to, to not enjoy the religious programming that belonged to the company at that moment. And so he was suggesting that they just cut all the religious content out because nobody cared about that anymore. And with great solemnity, Lord Reith rose from his place there at the chairman's position and with his six-foot-six frame stood up and stared down at the young man who made the suggestion and simply said this, the church will stand at the grave of the BBC. Because, of course, there's only one kingdom that will last. Insert whatever kingdom you want. Insert whatever empire you want. Insert whatever political propaganda news service you want. The church will stand at the grave of all. As there's about one king of kings and lord of lords who alone lasts forever and whose kingdom therefore lasts forever. Unless you go to your grave not realizing the essential point that we would need to see from Daniel chapter 2. Let me bring out a few final things from other parts of the passage about the only God whose kingdom will last forever. So the first thing you need to see is only one God speaks. Only one God speaks. Uh, you'll notice again what we're told in, in verse 10. That there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands. And they extend into verse 11. The Chaldeans do their comment that no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. I'll skip down to verse 28. Uh, what does Daniel tell Nebuchadnezzar? There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. You notice the middle part of verse 29, he refers to God as he who reveals mysteries. There's only one God who speaks. And they say, this belongs to the gods. This belongs, of course, to a ruler whose dwelling is not with flesh. But in the great mysterious of providence, of God's providence, is that it was, of course, someone from heaven whose dwelling place was there, who became flesh and dwelt among us. That became God's revelation to people like you and me. And that's why Hebrews chapter 1 can say that God has spoken to us in these latter times by his son Jesus Christ, who is the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature, that God speaks to his people, that only one God can speak. And he speaks through his son. So students, consider how, how God is sovereign in his revelation. Sovereign in his speaking. Nebuchadnezzar wanted no part of God's kingdom. Simple enough to say that, isn't it? He didn't want to hear from God. He didn't expect to hear from God. He wasn't looking to hear from God. So what does God do? I'll come speak to you. It's just going to be in a dream. And you're going to be greatly troubled. Because you must listen to me. I think we can say, can't we, with some degree of certainty and confidence that you sit in the room today because God is sovereign in wanting to speak to you. For reasons I don't know. Reasons the Spirit does know. He means to speak to you today. Only one God speaks. Only one God shatters. That's what I want you to see. Secondly, if you look at the middle part of Daniel's interpretation, this fourth kingdom, verse 40, there should be a fourth kingdom strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. 
And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. No doubt referring to the Roman Empire, an empire that had much sway in the world, an empire that was thought to be unbreakable and unstoppable. It was shattering kingdoms all throughout the world. And Daniel says there's a stone coming that's going to shatter even that one that people run away in terror and fear from. And it's interesting the way that the Lord Jesus Christ even picks up on this very image. You can go home and, and read it later today in Luke chapter 20. He speaks about this parable of the wicked tenants. And he says, those who fall on the stone will be broken to pieces. And those on whom the stone falls will be crushed. So it's why there's a reason when you come to a text like this, it's thoroughly appropriate and, and certainly right. Uh, to, to make the application, recognizing that all the kingdoms of the world, the kingdom of America to which so many of us belong sitting in here today, it's not going to last. It's not meant to last. It can't last. There's one kingdom that will shatter them all because there's only one kingdom that can last. But we, we've missed the point, haven't we, if we want to quickly rush to the ways in which that comfort and confidence does belong to us as Christians looking out there in the world, noticing that kingdoms won't stand uh, because there's, there's a kingdom in this room today that won't stand, that will be shattered according to the judgment of Jesus Christ. It's the kingdom of sin, isn't it? The kingdom of sin that resides in so many hearts, perhaps even in this room today, thinking that it can prevail. It's the kingdom of self, thinking that it can stand against the Lord. And he says, no. You will either fall on the stone, or the stone will fall on you. And either way, you will be shattered. Only one God speaks. Only one God shatters. Finally, only one God stays. You see the end of verse 44. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. It's, it's notable the way in which Jesus picks up on this imagery so clearly in, in his ministry. It's not just the, this rock that, that crushes. If you if glance back to the end of verse 35, he talks about this stone that struck the image that became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Does he not refer to himself in keeping with all other kinds of images in the Old Testament as the cornerstone, this, this rock of offense? But he almost takes that image there at the end of verse 35 and simply reminds his hearers that there's a kingdom coming it starts small, and then it just keeps growing, and growing, and growing, and it's unstoppable in its growth until it reaches the end of the world, because it's the kingdom that is eternal. It's the kingdom that's everlasting, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. There's only one kingdom that stays. So, so I wonder what you will do with that plain and main truth, the Lord's kingdom, and only the Lord's kingdom is everlasting. Well, you see what Nebuchadnezzar does. Look at verse 47. Truly, he says to Daniel, your God is God of gods, Lord of kings, revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. And then you'll see in verse 48 and 49, much like Joseph in the book of Genesis interprets a dream, Pharaoh exalts him to his right hand. So is Daniel's interpretation of the pagan ruler's dream, exalting him to the place of prominence as a prefect in all Babylon. But you're going to go wrong if you think that verse 47 communicates anything of trust in Yahweh. Uh, you see what he says, Nebuchadnezzar, your king is a great God of gods. Well, what's he saying? 
Among all the gods, he's a pretty good one. This one that just interpreted my dream. He doesn't say, does he? That there is but one king that is great. The God of gods and the Lord of lords. It's possible, isn't it? To hear this truth about a king whose kingdom is everlasting. And you might be stunned by that truth like Nebuchadnezzar. But you might not submit to it. You might be amazed at the power that belongs to the coming kingdom. But you might not bow before it. Well, know that there's only one king who speaks. There's only one king who shatters. There's only one king who saves and stays. Is it not true that the gospel promise of the Lord Jesus Christ to sinners like you and me is it's the Father's pleasure, he says, to give you the kingdom, this kingdom. So be stunned this morning. I pray that you would likewise submit before the king who is coming. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice this day that you are king, eternal, immortal, invisible, and wise. That we who were once bound fast in sin and darkness by the light of Jesus Christ have known what it means to be delivered from that domain and transferred into his eternal kingdom. Father, we pray that you would transfer us all into that kingdom this very day. If we have not yet been transferred into it, knowing that full access and entrance is available through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.